0: And the, gavel, the show that tells it all regarding family court other court issues as well as cts i'm your host marianne Petrie. i have a return guest i'm proud to have attorney t matthew phillips back on my podcast he was last on october 23rd 2022 season three episode 137 where we discussed that uh It's explained extremely well how family courts wrongfully allow judges to convict parents on criminal statutes, despite the fact that the accused parents are never actually indicted on such criminal statutes, which means the judges lack legal authority, subject matter, jurisdiction. I'm sure that sounds very familiar to everyone this past week, to find and conclude that parents violate criminal statutes, which violates due process. And we're here to update... What's going on in attorney Phillips's case. Now I, with your case, you are suing in the Supreme court of California and your judge had committed suicide.
1: Yeah. Yes. And we found
0: this out yesterday. So Mm -hmm. I thought maybe we should have a moment of silence. Okay, so anyways, we move on. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> no, I
1: gotta, you know I got a comment on this. Can I just say this real quick because the um, <clears throat> this thing, it is true that this guy, Matthew Harder, uh, apparently committed suicide, right? And he um, you know not all the details are out there, but there's really not a lot of fish. There's more, I think, gossip, rumor, and innuendo than there is actual fact. And I think the whole thing is highly suspect, but, What's kind of funny to me is you see all the people that are part of the family court cabal. You can always tell the, the cabal members, we are deeply saddened by this loss, right? But then the real world parents are like, are you kidding me? He's a fucking criminal. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And they're rejoicing at it. This, this guy, Matthew Harder, was a, a, a tyrant. He was a monster. He was a sadist. I have personal knowledge because I've talked to many parents who've lived through this. And while he wasn't my judge directly, you know, I have personal knowledge. I've also, um, like you mentioned, I've sued him as a plaintiff. And, uh, I've also representing someone in the ninth circuit court of appeals as an attorney. So I'm adversarial with this guy on two fronts and, um, or I was, I guess, but, um, the reason I sued him is because he is, uh, He had committed bankruptcy fraud. This is great. Can we talk about this one? This may be worthwhile. Oh sure, Judge Harder, so people uh, can hear the Judge Harder story because I still I still see people that are uh, that don't think we're think we're speculating about bankruptcy fraud. There's no speculation. What happened is Harder filed a Judge Harder or Matthew Harder had filed for bankruptcy uh, a couple of years back. Now, when you file for bankruptcy, in order to qualify for the discharge of the debt, um, you have to be sufficiently broke. And so that's why when people file bankruptcy, they will file um, an income statement, kind of like in family court, when you have to declare your assets, how much your income and so forth, liabilities, net worth. And so he had declared his income is zero, which is just not believable because anybody can go look at uh, the website and see how much he earns. He's a state employee, their salaries are public record, but yet in the bankruptcy court, which is public record also, you can see these documents, it says he has an income of zero. So that's perjury, that's bankruptcy fraud. This is Clark County courts, Clark County, Nevada. And they let this guy sit on the bench, but it's actually more than just committing fraud and committing perjury, lying under oath. But um, you got to ask yourself, why was he bankrupt in the first place? A judge is supposed to be a symbol of being, you know, cautious and prudent, and, and they're going to be divvying up other people's assets, you know. Now I understand sometimes people go bankruptcy with maybe medical bills, what have you, but this wasn't medical bills. He's doing real estate. And like, shouldn't he be reading people's briefs and maybe holding hearings? I can't tell you how many people said they never got a custody hearing. Well, because he's bit busy doing real estate speculating. They should pass a law that makes it illegal, I think, for judges to engage in business. It takes time off the bench. And clearly that's what these judges do because to them, I guess that's more pressing. But, anyways, I guess the real estate business didn't work out as well as he had planned. And so he filed bankruptcy. But on top of that, during the pendency of the bankruptcy, he received a home, a single family home worth like $300,000. It was quit quitclaimed to him. So when he received that $300,000 asset, he should have contacted the bankruptcy trustee because the bankruptcy trustee can sell that home and take the proceeds and give it to the debtor, or rather the creditors, you know, 15 cents on the dollar, who knows how much, you know. But uh, he concealed that asset from the trustee. That's a separate federal crime. And so, when I learned about these things, I contacted the, you know, Nevada Attorney General. Well, that's a dead end because Aaron Ford is not going to care. Like, why would he? You know, um, I contacted, you know, the U.S. Attorney's Office. I contacted the bankruptcy court. I contacted the, ban- you know, in writing. And I'm not just speculating. I'm saying, look at Exhibit One. Here's his statement look at exhibit two. Here's a deed from this property in Logandale, Nevada. You know, it's all right there. And nobody ever did anything. I suspect the reason is because Nevada is probably so inherently corrupt that nobody really possesses the intestinal fortitude to point the finger at somebody who's unethical because they're all like this. They must be all of the same ilk and they all turn their you know, turn their blind eye to it. So what I decided to do, this is really crazy. Remember, he was never my judge, but it's an outrage to me to think that all, everybody has knowledge by now. There's no way that they didn't know about it, but they allow him to remain on the bench. And I'm thinking, this is unbelievable. What chance do I have, okay? Mm -hmm. I'm just a regular peasant over here. What chance do I have when they allow this guy harder to remain on the bench? that is a potent symbol of corruption because it's a dead bang crime that he's committing. And it's not like it's a subjective thing. And and it's in a place where everybody can see it. This judge had the audacity to perpetrate a fraud right under the nose of a federal judge and in plain view of the general public who can see the filing. So anyways, it was just kind of a frustrating thing. So I sued him as a plaintiff, and I, I advanced a legal theory that had never before been advanced. My argument that is that under the 14th Amendment, we're entitled to a fair judiciary. Now, what does that mean? Who knows what it means? I mean, there right. are cases that may explain it, but the parameters, who knows? I'm thinking that if they allow this guy to sit on the bench, this stone-cold criminal, then we don't have a fair judiciary. So Mm -hmm. I sued for that, even though he's not my judge and um, it wound its way up through federal court. And then, um, but anyway, it's probably a moot issue now I would think anyways, but uh, so that's, that's the long and short of it. And um, it's just, uh, it's, it's amazing. But what's so funny to me also is to hear everybody speculating on what happened. Why is there no, I mean, I've heard things that he was shot in the stomach when I heard it. I naturally, I guess, you know my own prejudices i figured it would be a self-inflicted wound you know maybe like a soldier would do it or something mm-hmm. but um, apparently it was in the stomach which seems like a cowardly way to go but then again, you know, the whole thing is a cowardly thing to do you know mm-hmm. and then some people have told me that uh this happened at a remote location and then you wonder why would somebody you know drive to a remote location i mean and it did, somebody had to call 911 because I understand there was a helicopter and an airlift to the medical center. So, who called 911? I mean, the whole thing is is really sketchy when you think about it. And, uh, but um, I don't know. Those are my thoughts on it for whatever it's worth. And I will say this too, because um, you do have a completely polarized community, you have people that are saddened by the loss. He was such a wonderful person. And then you have others that are just uh, the, the vitriol. And we we get it because I have, you know, page on uh, Facebook and on the, um, the website and there people are sending us messages. You know, they really, really hated this guy because he really ruined a lot of people's lives in a huge way. And I can only imagine the future generations, all the kids that will suffer from this and continue to suffer from him. And then you think to yourself, you know what, they're just going to that ugly monster that was in Department N, well, Department N will grow another ugly monster and they still got a couple dozen ugly monsters left. And the point is like, when is this gonna change? You know, um, it it seems to me that the um, if they really wanted to run a decent courthouse, if they really wanted to be fair and just, the powers that be would listen to what the the people have to say about this because this guy was bad apple. And more than anything else, I mean, uh, you know th- there was a local thing um some guy was running for a family court judge and i guess he was despondent and, and you know had some depression and they were really riding this guy saying you know you're not eligible to be a judge because you had a bout of depression you know they're just really coming down hard on him well what about the guy who you know who shot himself i mean obviously you have to conclude that he was depressed you have to conclude he had some kind of mental illness and how long was it going on Mm-hmm. Then we come to learn, this is, I didn't mean to talk about this thing, but it's I guess it's on my mind because everyone's mm-hmm. talking about it, but um, he also, uh, I did have him actually as a judge briefly, but this is totally fortuitously. What happened is, um, I'm losing my train of thought here, but uh, he had contacted, uh, well, I had disqualified a series of judges to be my judge in my domestic case. Mm-hmm. Well, eventually the dice landed on this guy harder. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now it's unbelievable because why would they assign me to harder? Everyone has to know that I'm suing harder, both as a plaintiff and as a counsel of record. So they assigned me anyway. So I, all right, I guess I got to waste my time here. You know what I mean? At $950 an hour, I got to write a motion to get rid of this guy. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I, as I filed the motion, uh, the judge tapped out and that was it. He, he, you know, gracefully recused himself. But now looking back on it, I come to learn he's been on administrative leave for some time. We don't know how long. I've made some Public Records Act requests. I wanna know how long was he on administrative leave? And here's why, because uh, back in October, um, this was about three, two, three weeks ago, he signed or apparently he signed the recusal order. You know. Judge Matthew Harder, you know, I do hereby recuse. But I went and looked at the order cuz I'm thinking, wait, how did he sign an order cuz people are telling me he's been on administrative leave for several months. Well, I look at it and the thing is signed by his judicial assistant. And I'm thinking, wait a second, why is a judicial assistant, <laughs> this guy Mark E Fernandez, that's his name. I'm going to sue this guy cuz this is fraud. You know, I asked him point blank, I said You know, why are you signing these? You know, where was the judge when you were signing these? And he gave me really some suspicious answers, just really, you know, and uh, so to me, that's just absolute fraud. And I understand it's a commonplace thing. And it makes Mm -hmm. you wonder, like, who's really running the courthouse? Is the JEA, you know, that's judicial executive assistant. Are these people getting paid money on the side? you know, to do rulings. It makes me wonder. I mean, I don't have any actual knowledge of this, but I'll, all I hear people talking about. And the judge is going to be busy. You got to think these judges, they're they are doing real estate deals and who knows what all. They don't have time to be on the bench. Next thing you know, the JEA is running the courtroom. And maybe that explains some of the bizarre rulings that don't look like they were written even by someone who went to law school. So, um, but anyways, I kind of digress. We just want to know how long this guy has been uh on administrative leave. And why was he on administrative leave? Did he break his leg? I mean, you know, maybe that's a legitimate health thing. I mean, but then again, you think he'd ought to be able to work with a broken leg, I don't know. Or did he have some kind of mental illness? If if I were a litigant in his courtroom, I would immediately make a motion to overturn everything because he's obviously was, you know, cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs or else <laughs> he wouldn't have done what he did in the end. So, and, um, and I, I think also, I will say this, um if people aren't angry about this, you know, mm-hmm. and I I I I come I want to come across as angry. Don't mistake this for my parenting style, but um, but I'm angry about everything that goes on in the family court and this guy harder. And if where people you know don't achieve any kind of level of anger, that's a problem. Because if you're in an unjust setting and you don't feel anger, then you're part of the injustice. That's just the bottom line. That's a, a famous quote by St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, you know, the Catholic philosopher from many, many years ago. But um, so that's my opening.
0: <laughs> yes, it's very interesting that this all happened. And, you know, it always just amazed me that when a judge would pass at the courthouse, they I don't know, they'll put up a somehow a, a painting or put their picture up framed about Mm -hmm. so big, you know, and I I don't know. I am wondering why our taxpayers dollars going in to put a judge, a corrupt judge's picture on a wall in a Mm -hmm. courthouse, you
1: know, and people have asked me, you know, what we can do about it. And I try to think what kind of constructive things could, well, I think what we need to do is there needs to be mental health exams Mm -hmm. for every judge there. You have to do that because um, because really we don't know they're doing important decisions and you want to give them drug tests, you know. People always say, you know, so if a musician is working on a gig, should they be drug tested? Well, nobody really cares if a musician while they're playing music, what about if the pilot flying the plane? Do you want him smoking weed driving the plane? Well, probably not. Do you want the judge get, you know getting high while he's making? No, you really don't want to. Judges should be drug tested. It should be mandatory. Like, I don't know why any, because if you think about how important a job is, the more important it is, probably the greater the need to drug test and also to mental health, do mental health evaluations. These people, you know, that are in the family court, at least in Vegas, you know, they get elected and um, they just get elected because they got more, they got the most money of all the people that are running. And, you know, 95% of the time, the person who spends the most money wins in American elections. So... All we know about these people is that they used to be family law attorneys. Well, if they used to be family law attorneys, that means they've been inculcated. They've been brainwashed in how it's, you know, in all the corruption. And um, I think there should also be like a a literacy test for judges because I, and I mean this too, because if I would like to just, you know, ask any family court judge, what does the seventh amendment say? Like, would they be able to even know what the seventh amendment is? What about the 10th amendment? You know, what if I asked them, What are the five constitutional guarantees in the First Amendment? How many judges in family court could even answer those questions? Mm -hmm. They would have no idea, right? Do they understand that the concept of familial association, that's a right of association under the First Amendment that pertains to the family setting. You have a First Amendment right to have private speech with your children outside the scope of the government wizard or what's it called? the uh, Family wizard. Family wizard, I can't remember what it's called, which is, remember, family wizard is just a clever euphemism for government wiretap. That's all it is. And I would never go along with that. It's a wiretap, you know. And I would never go along with any kind of psych evaluation myself because the government needs a Fourth Amendment, you know, a search warrant to, to do a search inside my mind. But I think that the opposite, that they should submit to mental health exam, because what they're doing is too important. And I'll tell you another thing. There was a, a movie I watched recently about the official hangman in, uh, in England. He was like the guy who would do the hangings. And He was doing his gig during like the 40s and 50s. And he hanged a lot of people. That was his job to go get the rope, to take the measurements, to calculate the fall, Mm -hmm. to separate the third and fourth vertebrae, whatever it is. And um, but after a while, it took its toll on him. And now, why am I saying this? Because I have to believe somebody who's taking away children, who's separating families, eventually is going to take a toll on the psyche. You know, now I don't know if that if that's what happened with Harder, because frankly I don't think he possesses a conscience. He doesn't have any kind of, or didn't have any kind of conscience or remorse or anything else. But the point is that I believe there should be drug testing for judges, mandatory constitutional literacy tests, and there should be some kind of mental health evaluation. Myself, I don't believe in in mental health exams. I don't really think they. Um, they, uh, they yield anything valuable. But knowing that the judges are so wedded to the concept of forcing psych evaluations on everyone else, mm-hmm. we should do it on them, at least to see how they fare under their own standards and guidelines. Because I don't know if I could really judge whether somebody's competent or not. To me, the question is whether they know right from wrong. And What's crazy is the family court judges I've seen, they, they have a casual disregard for what's right and what's wrong. They do whatever they do in the moment and they act secure in the knowledge that they will never get sued. They really believe they have absolute immunity for everything they do and, and they don't. And uh, you can always sue a judge when they do an, a non-judicial act. You can always sue them when they act outside the scope of subject matter jurisdiction if they were to act in the clear absence of all jurisdiction, that Stump versus Sparkman, the uh, the 1978 case. And um, you can also sue them, I believe, when they violate the Constitution. If a judge violates your constitutional right, that's not an error. I mean, it is an error, but it's not an inadvertent error. It's not an oops. If a judge violates your constitutional right, they are amenable to suit. And th- I think the reason why is because rather, this notion of judicial immunity arises under state law, but the concept of, um, of the Constitution is a federal thing. So nobody is immune from the strictures of the Constitution, including judges who make bad calls. And let me say it also, they take an oath. I promise, I swear and defend, uphold and protect the Constitution, whatever it is. Um, to be mentally awake and morally straight. I'm doing the Boy Scout creed here. Yeah. But, um, but
0: or, the, I, <laughs> or I or I promise not to mute a pro se litigant when they're talking.
1: Oh, yes, yes.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I also believe there should be video and tamper-proof mics.
1: Yes. I'm
0: sorry, That's I didn't mean it. to interrupt you. Go ahead.
1: No, no, no. It's, uh, I'm with you 100% here, you know. I'm... Um, no well, that's my thoughts on this this whole thing, but uh do we are we taking questions from callers or: uh, No, you're just stuck with me Ah, you're, you're, <laughs>
0: <Okay. laughs> you're stuck with me because okay. the last time we talked, and I should have said this in the beginning is that we did oh, do a yes. Facebook live and uh, now you're, you're just you're just stuck with me. so oh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> but I know you have a conference call coming up, and I don't know what what time that is or how much time we have. I haven't
1: checked um, my phone here. Now. no i haven't got that i'm waiting for a text to come in so but anyways um what else were we going to talk about oh oh we
0: we were talking about like uh your well we had Mm -hmm. talked about your case and you know the subject matter jurisdiction Mm -hmm. why do these judges get this wrong all the time well it's it's
1: you know, I think they're doing it on purpose. My, myself, but but my subject matter jurisdiction argument is that I have the, a judge found I committed a crime, and I'm not saying that in a colloquial sense. The judge actually fi- found that I violated NRS section uh, whatever the number is. Blah blah blah. It's an actual criminal statute, and the question is, how did I come to violate this criminal statute? NRS 207.190. It's a coercion statute. It's a statute that says if you beat someone up to keep them from doing something or to force them into doing something, if you coerce them, then you go to the state penitentiary for like six years. Now they're using this criminal statute not to put the bad guys in jail, but they're using this criminal statute for an off-label purpose. What they're doing is they're using it to take away kids. And I have to believe the legislatures who wrote this law, they intended that it would be used to jail the bad guys who commit crimes. But they used it in my family court case as pretext to take away my son. And they said, I violated this criminal statute. But my argument is, wait a second. I was never arrested for that criminal statute. There was never a probable cause to believe I committed it. There's no criminal complaint anywhere. I'm never put on notice of the criminal facts alleged or the criminal statutes allegedly violated. It's just one day the judge in their um, ineffable exercise of discretion says, okay, well, yeah, Phillips committed a crime. Okay, take away his kid, child support, and then the Title IV D dollars begin to flow. And that's the jackpot. That's what they've been waiting for. All family court and all roads lead to that one thing, the magic of the Title IV-D security dollars. Mm -hmm. And that's why they kidnap your children because the state can't earn an honest living. The only way the state can make a buck these days is when they kidnap your children. Someone's gotta end up being a non-custodial parent. Someone's gotta pay into child support. And even if they're paying faithfully, the state has to be there to administer the program. And they get lots of money going after these deadbeat dads. I suppose it's women also, but- Oh yeah, I was one speaking, of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and they and it just becomes, it, it's, it's a sickness that they do this. And But anyways, back to subject matter jurisdiction. Um, I was never indicted. The word indictment is, of course, the old English word that means criminal complaint. We still use it in America. Um, but the fact that there's no people of the state of California versus T. Matthew Phillips. That's never happened, okay? And so how could the judge conclude I committed a crime? My specific argument is, no judge has subject matter jurisdiction or authority has any kind of legal authority to find or conclude that I committed a crime unless there's an underlying indictment. If there's no supporting criminal complaint, then there's no basis to find or conclude any criminal findings. But my judge is a full-on criminal and uh, Vince Ochoa is his name and I'm gonna keep suing him and I'm gonna take his money and I know where to garnish his wages. And so that's my goal to take his money and I'm gonna keep fighting this you know, to the Supreme Court and I'm, I'm, I'm anxious to do. Oh, and the good news is also, I thought I'd make an announcement here. Uh, last week, I was accepted to the United States Supreme Court. I'm now a member of the U.S. Bar. And I'm tickled to death because I'm uh, pitching in the major league. So, congratulations! <laughs> Thank you.
0: It's good to hear that's some great. good news. You know, we've had good news. You know, between the judge and now you getting into the Supreme Court arena, that's great.
1: No, I'm 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 so excited about it because uh, I realized I had no idea. It's kind of a hard hustle. You know, it's a lot of uh, time involved trying to you know get into the Supreme Court bar. But there's something like I think 1.3 million something like that lawyers, about 1.3 million lawyers in the country. And there's only about 1,500 that are licensed to argue in Washington, DC. And I'm, I'm tickled to death to be one of those. And um, I've already got a taste of the action because I filed as a pro se in the, um, in the Supreme Court. But you know, knowing how judges, and I suppose it's true even in the Supreme Court, nobody really wants to hear from a pro se. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a sad thing, but that's the main reason that I wanted to become a member of the bar of the Supreme Court so I can argue my case. And I'm, uh, actually it's gonna be on, looking at the calendar here. Next, um, this Friday, my case, this is a cool thing actually. This, here comes the announcement, okay? This Friday, they're gonna be discussing uh, my petition. And I'm so excited about this because uh, on Friday, you're going to have, uh, you know, Justice Roberts and Samuel Alito and uh, Clarence Thomas and the rest of the gang are actually going to be, you know, voting and deciding whether or not we have oral arguments and whether, uh, you know, what's going to happen. And I think I'm pretty sure we will know the week following. So the week of the 21st, they're going to issue an order and either says we're denied and the, I mean. I'm tickled to death and I'm trying to really be super duper positive, but it's like a 1% chance. you know. But then again, I think we do have a great case because the issues really are of nationwide importance. I mean, Mm -hmm. they really are. And not only that, but it's such a grand scale. They always say the Supreme Court is not there to correct errors of a lower court. But the reason the Supreme Court is there is to promote the greatest good across the greatest number of dynamics. And I like to think looking at our case, or my case rather, it's, that really affects everybody nationwide. Think how many courts across America, they have people that are, you know, judge sua sponte, okay, you committed a crime and and it's ridiculous because what's happening in family court is it's a hybridization of criminal and civil. They wanna shake you down and make you a criminal. But remember, they don't wanna actually put you in the criminal court. If they actually put you in the criminal court, they don't make any money. They don't make any money prosecuting crimes, the guy who steals something from 7-Eleven, you know. But if they keep you in the civil court, make it all about money, but pretend you're a criminal, that's what's going on. But I think it needs to stop. And hopefully the Supreme Court justices will realize this is a nationwide thing. And it's it goes beyond that because, you know, in my case, um, Another thing I'm alleging is the idea of vigilante justice because what happens in family court is they allow one parent to say he tried to kill me, tried to schmill me, whatever it is, you know, uh, beat me up every day or whatever these you know allegations are. But as soon as you hear allegations of violent crime, there should be like a time, oh, full time out on the court, right? And um, they should send the case to uh, to the criminal court if there's some kind of evidence but again we know how it is domestic violence is the biggest scam in the history of scams that's why they got the little purple ribbons to remind people that it's a scam because if there's evidence of domestic violence then it goes to criminal court and you know the bad guy gets you know punished because if there's evidence all it takes is a slightest scintilla of evidence. Law enforcement will arrest. It's not a high threshold. But if you have no evidence of any kind whatsoever, other than your own self-serving testimonials, then you go to civil court. And it's a he said, she said contest where neither side is believable because really it's he said, she said. But the judges on that level of evidence, they always manage to find, wow, I find clear and convincing evidence that he beat her up every day or whatever it is, mm-hmm. you know? And you gotta say, how can you find clear and convincing evidence in a he said, she said contest? Mm-hmm. He said, she said, it was like, what, 51%? You know, uh, if it's, well, preponderance of the evidence is 51%. That's the standard of proof you need for a civil case. Like, you know, a landlord tenant, slip and fall, car accident. But clear and convincing is higher than that. How does a judge find clear and convincing evidence when nothing can be corroborated from the victim's mouth? You know, how can that be? That really can't be clear and convincing. But again, the problem is that they're allowing one parent to be both prosecutor and victim at the same time in the same case. Mm -hmm. And so the victim is essentially bringing the criminal allegations to court. Now, again, those criminal allegations don't really belong in a civil setting, but and the crazy opponents we have in this case, it's a law firm, this guy, Mark Hutchison out in Vegas has this law firm. They've coined this novel legal theory. I think it's one of the dumbest things in the history of dumb. Their argument is, well, uh, this is a crime in a civil setting. That's their explanation. It actually never gets better than that. They never say where this doctrine originates from because they literally pulled it out of thin air. You know, and they never I- extrapolate on it. They just say that it's okay to do it to adjudicate crimes in a civil setting. Well, it's really not okay to adjudicate crimes in a civil setting. There's never been historical precedent of a crime ever being adjudicated in a civil setting. And um, so this is the uh, the OJ thing. I always talk about the OJ case because people say, "Well, what about OJ?" You know, they sued him for murder and they won. No, they didn't. OJ was never sued by the families for murder. He was sued by Gil Garcetti, the Los Angeles County District Attorney, who brought a criminal complaint under a criminal statute, California Penal Code Section 187A. That says murder is the unlawful killing of another human being with malice aforethought. I had to memorize that like 30 years ago, right? Mm. But, but that's, the, that's the murder statute. They tried to get him on the murder statute and they didn't. So when Ron Goldman and Nicole Brown's family, when they brought a civil lawsuit in a civil court, they proceeded under a civil statute, California CCP 377.60, which is a wrongful death statute. So, but there's never been a situation in a civil court where somebody sues for murder. Like there's no way I could sue somebody for murder. You can't. The only person who can sue, and it's funny, when it comes to a criminal thing, they don't call it suing, they call it being indicted. So (laughs) the the DA will indict you on a crime under a criminal statute. But in civil, you sue for money under a civil statute. The point is you're supposed to have two separate trains on two separate tracks, your criminal train with your criminal evidence and criminal allegations and criminal statutes, and then the civil world. But family court is about, hmm, well, let's rethink this. Maybe we can start doing crimes here. And what they do is they say, you know what? We can save money. We'll, we'll in the civil court, we'll do a criminal a criminal action. We'll let one spouse be the prosecutor, and she can, generally the she, I guess, can bring the allegations of, of criminal activity. And uh, then they, remove the indictment requirement. They don't give the defendant any notice of the criminal facts alleged. They don't get any notice of the uh, criminal statutes allegedly violated. And then to further ensure they're gonna get a conviction, they lower the evidentiary standard to clear and convincing. That's much lower than the constitutional standard, which is beyond a reasonable doubt. Actually, like it was in the old movies, beyond a reasonable doubt and to a moral certainty. So. Instead of having to be 99% sure to, to conclude this criminal activity, now they conclude criminal activity on a lower evidentiary standard, which only ensures more convictions. And this is another thing. You know, I say I was convicted of a crime, and they say, no, you weren't. You weren't officially convicted. And I'm thinking, okay, well, yeah, if you did a criminal background check, you're not going to find any criminal convictions of NRS 207.190, but nevertheless, a judge in his ineffable wisdom concluded that I violated, how did that judge make that legal conclusion? I mean, I was thinking of like, you're playing Jeopardy, you know, um, imagine the Jeopardy question. This happens when a judge makes a legal conclusion that you committed a crime. Um, what is a conviction? No, I'm sorry, you're in family court. You weren't really convicted, but they managed to take away my kid anyway and they, they, they stuck me with all kinds of, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in fees and it's, um, it's absolute insanity. But another thing they do to ensure the conviction is they've removed the presumption of innocence. And this is really troubling to me. I've, I've done a survey worldwide and <clears throat> basically all countries in the world have a presumption of innocence, but not in America. And they've stopped doing it in England and Canada. And Australia and New Zealand. And these are, of course, all the areas where people are really into doing, you know, uh, they have toxin mandates and they're really heavily into, you know, toxinating the children. And they're just really got, you know, everything's about the toxins in these countries. And mm-hmm. what is it in common of America, Canada, England, Australia, and New Zealand? All these English speaking countries, they've all. Adopted this family court system, and they've all removed the presumption of innocence, which is crazy because the presumption of innocence goes back. You know, they've had it in, in so many criminal codes and Napoleonic codes, and you know these basic basic ideas that you have to be presumed innocent. I mean, everybody has seen uh, what's that show? Uh, F- uh, Cops, right? Everybody watched Cops, and they they show the guy getting arrested, and they show him in a bad light, and then but they always have the disclaimer. All persons are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. You are innocent. The judge is supposed to presume you're innocent. You're totally innocent until that magic moment when the jury says that he did it. We, the jury in the above entitled action, conclude that he did it beyond a reasonable doubt. That's never happened for me. So they should be presuming I'm innocent, but they're not. They've removed the presumption of innocence and what's crazy too if you look at article 11 of the united nations charter the united nations supposedly stands for the presumption of innocence well i I'm, I'm i want to go to uh united nations next summer and i want to address you know the general assembly and tell these people this is ridiculous america has no business preaching you know how you know human rights and trying to you know criticize chile or Saudi Arabia. What about right here at home? They've removed the presumption of innocence. But there's the only reason they're doing it because it generates revenue for those involved. That's the only reason they're doing it is because these lucky few, and to me, they're all monsters. And in, in you know, I'm critical of a lot of the, uh, the judges, but the attorneys are just as bad. They're complicit. They're complicit in evil and they turn the other way and say, well, I'm just doing my job. Someone's got to do it. So I'll just rake in all the money. And the whole family court really is, uh, it's become a haven for useful idiots who in my opinion have no legal skills of any kind whatsoever, but they just, they're in the right place at the right time to rip everybody off. And they have no kind of, um, any kind of ethical backbone. They don't care anything about the children. They don't even know the children's names. It's never about the children. And it's disgusting what's happening. But um, this is turning into a. uh, Well,
0: uh, well, isn't it something that when a judge rolls against the fit target parent and takes the child completely away from the fit target parent, this judge gets to go home to his family and sit down at a table and have dinner with his family. Mm -hmm. I wonder, you, you know, does he just blank all this out that he destroyed a couple of lives today or what? Uh, that's why I think they're mentally ill. I, I really do. Because, <laughs> yeah. it, you know,
1: in, seriously, I mean, it, yeah. if they had, you know, there's this old thing, I remember, you know, philosophy reading, you know, if they had an advertisement the help wanted and let's say the gig were, you know, to be a, an executioner, you know, to kill people. Oh like, yeah. So You know, some people are going to show up, but I mean, how many people would show up and what kind of, and the people that do show up for that gig, what kind of mental problems do they have? You know I mean? The, the point is that what these people are doing is evil. They have to know that they're causing scars, but, but they're doing it on purpose. Again, this isn't accidental. They, they always take away uh, the, the child from the more fit parent. And it's not even really fit. It's the one who's more capable of putting up a fight, okay? They mm-hmm. looked at me and they looked at the ex and they said, who can fight better? the the guy who's been a trial attorney for 30 years or the other one. And so they decided that I was more capable either because I have more financial resources or because I'm, you know, more talkative or whatever. I'm more backbone, but they sense that who's going to fight harder and they take the kid away because they want to watch you start fighting because when you start fighting the dollars start flowing and Mm -hmm. that's exactly what they want. It's all geared about making money. And that's the part that, that, I, I don't know you got to think these people are just um they're only in it for their 30 pieces of silver mm-hmm. because they're all a bunch of you know judases or judai i guess i don't know how you say or Pontius it. Pilate. They're, yeah, they're all they're all bunch, they're low lives bottom feeders oh yeah they're certainly not there's they're not nothing that's you know, worthwhile, in my opinion. There's nothing that's should be looked up to or, or admired. They're just there to screw who they can and take advantage of people. And, you know, and, I, and the attorneys that I've met are horrible. And that's why I've already sued. Um, I don't know how many attorneys I've sued, you know, family court attorneys, but I intend to sue more. I'm going to be suing this this guy who who clearly, it seems to me, forged a judge's signature, you mm-hmm. know? I mean, do I have actual knowledge? I am like... I don't know all the facts, but I I asked this guy point blank and he gave me the runaround. So knowing that the judge Harder was on administrative leave and then seeing a signature that, you know, I am I believe right now that it's not him and there's nothing out there to contradict it. So I wanna sue this guy for fraud upon the court and I can't wait to see what his response is gonna be. And again, how much, um, how much of what's going on out there is really being run by these judicial assistants. It's another great question. So.
0: I'm so glad we talked today and I know you're, <laughs> I won't keep you much longer, but um, I'd like to have you back on again for another update. So um, okay. don't jump off. Okay. Oh, no, but, I'm,
1: I'm uh, trying to think of what else I wanted to say. I just oh, I'm so sorry. Of... Go ahead. If you... You know, I can't remember. I was trying to make some mental notes, but um, I think the main thing I was hoping that people would, uh uh, well, I guess I wanted to talk about the Supreme Court case because that's the main thing. But I think I I told you all my legal theories. The the final one is I think I'm entitled to a jury trial,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know. And uh, the uh, I think this when someone is accused of of a crime and their constitutional liberties hang in the balance, meaning the right to be a parent, that's a constitutional right. If if your constitutional right is hanging in the balance then I think they have to give you um, an attorney because they're accusing you of crimes. Now their comeback is, well, you weren't facing any jail time. And the general rule is that if it's like six months or less, then they can't put you in they they don't need a a a trial to put you in jail. If if this if the time sought and they're saying for you it's zero time. But it's not the consider that's the wrong consideration. And it's funny, they're the, in the Supreme Court, they're not arguing this. Judges, have I've heard them argue this you know, in the family court, but, um, but our whole argument is that we're, it doesn't matter whether or not you're facing time. That's not the consideration. The consideration is whether the statute you're being tried under is a criminal statute and does it carry potentials of over six months. The, the crime I committed carries a potential six years in the state penitentiary was I ever facing six years? They're gonna say no. Was I ever facing six months? No, but still I was tried under a statute with a potentiality of six years in the state penitentiary, which really begs a question. If you have a judge, this guy, Vincent Ochoa, now he, was, he, he didn't conclude that I com- comm- committed a crime on more likely than not evidence. He, he concluded I committed a crime by clear and convincing evidence. And yet there's nothing to corroborate this, nothing to verify it, nothing than the self-serving testimonials, not one witness, not one piece of substantiating evidence other than the testimony from the victim herself. And she has every motive to falsify. Remember, because they, they have a stake in whether or not their lie rings true. Because if, if it hits the mark, then they get the kid. And the more, if they get to have the kid, they get more money in child support. You know, and and the thing is, for those um, the people that that do lie in family court, you know, there are plenty of people who do lie. But for those people who do, it's a calculated business decision. You really can't fault somebody if you think about it, because if a person is clever, if a person is intelligent, and well read, they're going to make a business decision. Say, you know something, if I lie and 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 they believe me, then I'm going to score big if my lie gets found out, what will happen? Nothing. How many people have ever been prosecuted by the district attorney for lying in family court? Zero. It just doesn't happen. So why wouldn't you try to do it? You know, again, you really can't fault somebody because if that person has no conscience and has no problem lying, then why not? You know, it's a question of morality and everybody when it comes to these things, they create their own moral universe. And if it's okay for them to do it, it's okay. If they sleep great at night, that's that's fine, you know. And it's it's maybe it's a shame. It's a, you know, maybe that person shouldn't be a parent, you know, I don't know. But um it, it's the, the point is they shouldn't have created a system like this in the first place. Mm-hmm. Because if this judge Vince Ochoa is so sure that I committed a crime, well, how come I'm not being arrested for it? How, how come they're not indicting me? Mm-hmm. Uh, a ju- you know, if a policeman has a hunch that, that I beat up only is a hunch, then they can basically arrest me and they can prosecute me, file criminal charges. We're talking about a police person who's by and large uneducated in the law. I mean, that's just the truth. But compare that to a judge who's been a judge for, what, 10, 12 years and a lawyer for like 30 years before that doing nothing but family law. You would mm-hmm. think that they, you know, but even though this person, you know, you think they're an expert in domestic violence and stuff. If he's such an expert and he's so sure it happened, why am I not being indicted? Somebody Mm -hmm. indict me. There's a reason. I'll tell you why they wouldn't indict me. You know why? Because the case wouldn't survive a preliminary hearing. If we had a probable cause hearing, all I would have to do is say, um, your honor, there is no evidence of any kind uh, whatsoever. There is uh, not one witness. Not one piece of substantiating evidence other than the testimony of the victim herself, and she has every motive to falsify. Right? Mm-hmm. I'm actually, you know, I'm you probably recognize that line. I'm quoting Al Pacino, you know, I always do my favorite, you know, with the witness for the prosecution, you know. But, um, anyways, that's the uh, basically the long and short of it, and we should know on the Supreme Court thing, we should know by uh, by next week. I'm Okay. So not this coming one, but the week after that. And even if we do lose, I, I want to bring, I want to represent other people
0: mm-hmm. because
1: if we lose, it's not necessarily because it was a horrible argument. If it says petition denied I mean maybe they, you know, I understand that they get about 8,000 petitions a year. And of those 8,000, they hear maybe 70, which is probably less than 1% when you think about it. But, um, but the whole point is that even if we do lose, I want to represent other people making the same arguments because it's kind of like, you know, they do with abortion. Somebody's always finding petitions in the Supreme Court for different nuances on the abortion issue. That's always going to be a hot topic. And every now and then the Supreme Court bites like they did recently in that uh, um, abortion case that they had. And so I, I'm, I'm hoping other attorneys will start making these arguments because it's really it's a fundamental it's a they're ruining a whole generation of children and they're scarring parents and you know every family that goes through the family court they have no assets left the children's not going to really get any inheritance at this point you know mm. what i mean
0: mm-hmm. and
1: so in all in all of my time is spent you know trying to, to you know there's other things i could be doing other than this but Anyways, but but I'm, I'm glad I'm doing it. It's a worthwhile thing, and I believe one of these days my son will watch this, and if my son ever does watch this, I want him to know that I'm doing this for all the right reasons. I'm doing this because I want him to grow up in a world that's not a shithole like Clark County, Nevada. So that's my sermon, and I think I'm being a good father. I think I'm setting a good example, and I've you know, been forthright and, and, and straightforward in my dealings in family court. You don't see me lying and committing fraud like uh, everyone else does. But it's another story altogether. Mm-hmm. So, well, um, I, I, I certainly think. And I mean, the attorneys, I, I blame the attorneys when I talk oh, yes. about fraud. I'm talking about the attorneys. So mm-hmm. anyways.
0: Well, I want you to win because I know your case has merit and I hope Thank they you. look at it very closely and rule in your favor.
1: Well, thank you. And, and I'm hoping other people, I meaning other attorneys will advance the same argument. And if you know of folks um, that I'm sure we all know plenty of people like this, I want to take these issues to the Supreme Court because they're ripe for adjudication. And the truth is they've never been ruled on. Nobody has ever ruled on this issue. I mean, I want to know what would have happened. I said it before, I'll say it again. If Ron Brown's family and um, Nicole Goodman's, uh, Nicole Goodman and Ron Brown's, i say it here. Nicole Brown and Ron Goodman's, Goldman's family, if they sued for murder, like what would happen if they sued a civil lawsuit? What is a civil judge gonna think? Wait, you're suing for murder? Wait, California Penal Code 187? The judge would be like, counsel, this is a civil courtroom. You're thinking wrongful death, aren't you? Like, I, I don't think it's ever happened, but what if an attorney wanted to pull a stunt, you know? It might be not a stunt, but, you know, do a a lawsuit kind of like a protest, or at least you want to find out where it goes. If I filed a lawsuit against somebody for murder, you know, would the judge kick it back and say you can't proceed on that? Uh, I would think they would have to. But then again, how do they do it in family court? How does the judge conclude you commit a crime? Because I said this so many times, judges, they can't probate a will in family court. We don't have jurisdiction to probate a will. Can they... Um, can they do a workers' comp claim in family court? They don't have subject matter jurisdiction for workers' comp in family court. Okay, what about, uh, I don't know, filing bankruptcy? Could I file bankruptcy in family court? No. All right, well, how about if I, can we prosecute this guy for beating me up? Yes. If it's a crime, we can do it. But how? Like, what Mm -hmm. is now, what happens is you have experienced lawyers who say, Phillips just doesn't understand how it works. He just doesn't understand. That's what we do. That's how it goes. He doesn't practice this type of law. Well, yes, that is how, that's a true statement. That is how it goes. They do do this. If you were to ask a lawyer you know and the lawyer were really giving you honest advice, they would say, well, there's the law that was written and I guess is aspirational, but it don't make no money. So we have this is what we do. It's not really the law, but it's what the laws evolved into it's mm-hmm. the expected norm it's what all the attorneys when they say i'm a family court attorney it's because they know and understand that they do criminal things in in a civil context like that but the point is it's not legit and what we need are lawyers who recognize that this is wrong and you know it's kind of hard to find that um oh my calls coming in here now it's okay no, it's it's, it's kind of it's i'm i'm going to call back in a second it's it's kind of hard to find lawyers who um who are really willing to stand up for what's right because nine out of 10 out of 10 lawyers are just like, okay, I got to get the retainer, bring the 3,500 in cash. I'll meet you at the courthouse, you know, 20 minute hearing. Bye-bye. Never talk to you again. Right. That's what the lawyers are thinking. The lawyers are not thinking, you know, what, what is, what is just, you know, what is true. And, um, but that's, I think the fault of, a. Uh, well, it could be a lot of reasons for that one, but, um, I should probably jump out here. Um, Do we touch all the uh, the subjects? Or Oh, definitely. You know? And
0: I'm going to have you back on. So, <laughs> hey, uh, don't jump off. Slam the gavels <laughs> of okay. podcast to help the public understand what really goes on in these family courtrooms. I am your host, Marianne Petri, author of Dismantling Family Court Corruption, Why Taking the Kids Was Not Enough, and Cry Out for Justice, Poems of Truth. Please join us again here in the future with Attorney Phillips and other exciting guests. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. I really do appreciate it. And if anybody wishes to call me or email me, um, please do give them my contact info.
0: I will. I will carry the same contact info from the last podcast. But could you give your email if you would like? Oh
1: sure. Um, uh, first of all, I want to I want to thank Marianne. Also, you're the best. You're like the nicest host of all time. And there's never been you got gotcha your questions. So God bless you for that. And uh, anyway, it's T Matthew Phillips, all one word, no spaces. Uh, double T in Matthew, double L in Phillips, T Matthew Phillips at AOL.com. And yes, we are old school like that. So T Phillips at AOL.com. And the phone number is area code 323 314 6996.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much. And we will meet again. <laughs> Rock and roll. <laughs> Definitely.